Hello, welcome to Raw File News. I'm your host, Topherin Ford. With me as always, my co-host, Brandon Givens. Brandon, tell me how things are going. Ah, pretty good. We had track and field, a track and field meet this uh, weekend, and I measured the long jump a whole bunch, and yeah, it was good. Had some yeah, kids from a couple of schools, and yeah, it was it was nice to have a nice day. Yeah, I like the idea of being like um, athletic competition adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have to do any jumping. I just I just measured how far they jumped. Right. You're there, you're out in the sun. Other people are being active, so and you're standing, walking around a little. So yeah, I I, I see that as giving you a like a, a, a sense of being athletic without pushing our soft 43-year-old. <laughs> uh, <laughs> office, you know, desk driven bodies too hard um that's good i am enjoying uh a three-day weekend i finally have a job that recognizes you know some of the you know the holidays? well most of the jobs that i've had the only holidays that they will give you off are like thanksgiving day christmas day maybe christmas eve and easter you know, but now I have um, a better job and they're like, yeah, here, have these, you know, other days off. Yeah. Teaching and, internationally is kind of interesting because we will often get the holidays of different countries. So like we're in Kazakhstan, so we'll get the Kazakh holidays off. But like if we had like a whole bunch of, say, Dutch kids, which, which we don't, then we might get King's Day off as well. And sometimes uh, well, we get Christmas off, but that, that's not so much just because it's, um, it's kind of considered an American school, even though the Americans are not the majority of students or even a plurality. But it follows kind of an American curriculum. Um, but yeah, well, usually, yeah, we have to we have follow the local and uh, the local holidays and then usually throw in a couple of uh, U.S. holidays for good measure. Well, that's nice. Yeah, that yeah. sounds that sounds very nice. Yeah. Well, that we usually end up working the same amount of days, though. It's just more spread out. And... All right, let's get to it. Yeah, we got some news. Dang it. Let's read some dang news. Starting off in Ethiopia, um, a new report from the group International Displacement Monitoring Center says that 5.1 Ethiopian, I'm sorry, 5.1 million Ethiopians were displaced within the country in 2021. Uh, internally displaced in this context means people who were forced to flee their homes but stayed within their country. So they're basically refugees, but they are still in their home country. In Ethiopia, people have been forced from their homes due to a number of reasons, including violent attacks on people, schools, hospitals, and other public facilities, as well as famine. Uh, this number of internally displaced people within Ethiopia is the highest, is, well, is now the highest number on record, with the previous record being 3.5 million people 
displaced in Syria in 2013. So, it's like more people than live in Arkansas. Yeah, it's it is a crazy amount of people who, and it, you know, like internally displaced is kind of a a sterile term, but you know, it, you like imagine five million people who have to just leave behind their homes and everything, probably most of their possessions, if they even had that much to begin with. And the population is 115 million. So, you know, it's less than 5% of the population. So it's not so bad. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's like, I keep forgetting satire doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Satire is dead. I just, um, no, I, I I get what you're saying, I, or you know, I I I picked up where you're putting down, but yeah, it's it is rough. So, they're they've also having some kind of uh, another military issue because it's like the Tigray issue calmed down, but there's um, the other region. What is it, Amhara? Yeah. That's, um, and they, they like support the government or have been supporters of the government, but perhaps feel that they've gotten the shaft and now the government's mad at them because they feel they got the shaft or something. It's right. Like, stop, yeah. So feeling this... like we don't appreciate you enough. Now we're going to arrest a bunch of you. Right. Like we that. have this, uh, the story from the BBC from, from Saturday that we're recording this today is May 29th, 2022. So this is from May 28th from the BBC, uh, Ethiopia unrest, sudden arrest of 4,000 spells fear in Amhara. And yeah, this is from the, uh, article quote, Ethiopia's government has launched a crackdown against a powerful and increasingly autonomous regional security force in a bold and potentially risky move to extend central control over a fractious nation. And then this is uh, also from this article, quote, these new measures by Ethiopia's prime minister are designed to clip the wings of an increasingly strident nationalist movement in Anhara and come months after a humanitarian ceasefire was declared in the war-torn Tigray region next door. But it is not yet clear whether the crackdown in Amhara will bring greater stability to a turbulent Ethiopia or further inflame ethnic tensions in a nation already struggling to contain powerful centrifugal forces. So they're having problems. Speaking of problems, uh, we move to Israel and Palestine to discuss the murder of the Al Jazeera journalist, Shireen Abu Akleh. Uh, Hold on now. Oh, I'm that sorry. Was, that was loaded language. You said murder. Uh, well, it hasn't been. It hasn't been definitively proved yet. It should be responsible and say um, the 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 death and unresolved um, circumstances surrounding it. Of course, uh, the the people that have been accused of being responsible for the death do not appear to be that interested in discovering the the, the circumstances around it. I, you know, I. In my defense, I'll say that the word murder, I'm not the first one to use that in this context, and I've been seeing it and hearing it from multiple 
news outlets. I mean, not to say that that makes it true, and you're right. We should remain um, objective. <laughs> as possible. But it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. So, I mean, yeah. what, else, what do you call it when somebody gets shot at a funeral that wasn't like doing anything? And yeah. even if it's accidental, it's like uh, the manslaughter. You could, yeah, I think you could fairly call it manslaughter. The manslaughter. Uh, Maybe. Well, manslaughter. it depends. Uh, it is. Uh, it it is definitely an either or situation. <laughs> either yeah. it's manslaughter, which implies that it you know she was uh, an unwitting you know uh, collateral damage, or it was murder because she was targeted. So you know Palestine has been conducting its own report, its own investigation into the uh, killing of Abdullah. The Palestinian investigation reports that it has determined that Israeli forces did shoot and kill Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh and that she and other journalists grouped with her were intentionally targeted by Israeli forces. The Palestinian attorney general says that Israeli forces were the only people doing any shooting. News outlet Al Jazeera says it's submitting the case, as well as Israel's bombing of Al Jazeera's offices in Gaza in 2021 to the International Criminal Court. Other news outlets, including Bellingcat, CNN, and the Associated Press, say their own investigations also reinforce the likelihood that Abu Akleh was targeted and killed by Israeli forces. Israel's defense minister calls the claims a blatant lie and says Israel is conducting its own investigation. Well, they better because uh, they need to have some something to defend their people at the International Criminal Court. Right. And uh, this, this brings up something that we haven't discussed much, but she was killed in the Jenin refugee camp which has been a source of conflict in the area for a long time now. And the Jinnin camp is a massive camp of around 10,000 Palestinians. And it's a place where you get, um, where it seems like anyway, and I'm not an expert, I, you know, I'm, I'm learning about this stuff recently. But it seems to be a source of Palestinian extremists. Uh, some people from the Jenin camp attacked some Israelis, uh, I want to say back in March, which was kind of the, you know, like the impetus for this whole situation now. And yeah, it comes back to the question of like, as Israel continues to expand its settlements, where, what are these people going to do? Where are they going to go? And well they're, well, they're basically living in these camps. Um, I think I think for people that, that don't know it, it is important to make clear that the camps. Uh, I mean, they started out as when you hear the word camp, what you think of like, like tents, tents and shelters. Yeah. But I mean, now they're not they're not camps. It's just they've been. You know, they were displaced uh, by the war, you know, the, the initial one. And then 
It was like, well, here you are. Are you going anywhere? And some people left and went to Jordan and some people went to Syria and some people stayed. And then they just started building homes there. And so if you look look at them, they they look kind of like the like shanty towns, but they're made out of concrete. So it's but it's people that they like their grandparents lost their land and livelihood and then just kind of dropped them off. You know, it's like they're and so you've got two, three generations of people living without an industry, you know, like these camps, you know, I mean, it's like, well, it looks like a city, but, and it kind of is, I'm sure they have little stores and shops and stuff, but right. Not necessarily any set industry to speak of. Right. And, and while there are like concrete structures, they're not living in tents. It's, it's still not, it, I, you know, from the pictures and uh, that I've seen and the reports I've read, it still doesn't sound like a great place to be. Yeah. And like what would initially happen or eventually happen if the Israelis, you know, they keep people keep moving into the West Bank with the settlements. And I mean, they're just kind of making um, they're just fencing them off. And it's like, OK, well, you stay on that side of the fence. It's just a kind of a patchwork of private neighborhoods. And I think at some point they would just you know, kind of yell over the fence. All right, we outnumber you now, so you can have a passport if you want. Um, you know, the, and they could, they'd be free to leave, but, you know, it's kind of, kind of hard to get started, but that still may be a better option. But at the same time, you know, they, they're not going to have a Palestinian state. Uh, I think they're, I think the Palestinian leadership, or, I don't know, I, I'm not going to give advice. Yeah. <laughs> well, them, yeah. yeah, I'm not going to go there. Not today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Well, moving on to Russia. Um, a ship entered the port of Maripol on Saturday, May 28th, to be loaded with almost 3,000 tons of metal, which will be shipped back to Russia, according to Russian state-owned news news agency TASS. There was no word on where the metal was produced or what it will be used for, but it is worth noting that Maripol is the home to the Azovstal steel plant, where a small group of Ukrainian fighters managed to hold off Russian forces for some time. The metal may have also come from Ukrainian metal company Metinvest. So, you know, more you know, the of course Ukrainian officials are calling this looting theft. Um, I'm assuming Russia says, you know, like, well, we have Maripol is ours now. Uh, they're de-no- they're denazifying that steel. They're taking it back to Russia to be denazified. Right. When did Russia become a YouTube comments section? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it works. I mean, people believe that sort of thing. And, it, you know, stuff gets repeated over and over again. And, you know, that's just kind of how how people work, and they believe it. Uh, yeah, isn't it? Well, uh, so what else is what else is Putin doing with some of um, Ukraine's raw goods? Right. Well, Vladimir Putin says now he's willing to consider allowing Ukraine to resume grain exports through the Black Sea 
He also said that Russia would increase exports of its own fertilizers and other agricultural products if sanctions were lifted. So that sounds to me like he's uh, trying to use that grain, the Ukrainian grain, as leverage to get some of their sanctions lifted. You know, because like we've talked about before, the Ukraine's inability to export grain is having a global impact on food availability. And so Putin knows, you know, starving people are a big, uh, um, yeah, man, the free negotiating trade point. Yeah, the whole free trade economics, um, comparative advantage people need to start looking at the books again and say, hmm, food security must be taken into account, too. Well, that's but, only if uh, the, you know, the free trade people actually care about human life. But yeah. uh, the quote, uh, Professor Farnsworth from Futurama, there's no scientific consensus that life has any value. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that is kind of true. That what I hope that I hope that the West aren't dumb enough to reduce the sanctions in exchange for letting this grain out because it teaches what it rewards invading a country. It's right. like, oh, you did something we don't like, we're gonna sanction you. Okay, well we're gonna do something worse. Oh, okay, we give up then. Like what? Right. Um but I think they're they're banking on um like in the American Civil War, the um, Confederates, you know, they exported cotton and like 50 percent of English GDP was based on like cotton and cloth production. And so they thought, oh, well, we're going to forbid the export of cotton and, and the English for their economy will collapse and they'll come and help us because, you know, money. And I guess it was a logical plan enough, but it didn't work. Um, they just invested heavily in growing cotton in Egypt and South Africa and imported a lot of cotton from India. Uh, and there were some other factors, like their warehouses were full of cotton from a bumper harvest the year before, so they had a little bit of cushion. Uh, but it sounds like kind of the same thing. It's like, ha well, you know, they're, they'll, people will be hungry and people will be hurting. and But the people who will really be hurting and Hungary are like Sub-Saharan Africans and Southeast Asians. People who have nothing to do with the yeah. conflict directly. Yeah or, yeah, or the political pull. And But to make up for that shortfall, I'm pretty sure we're going to see more and more propaganda or continue to see the propaganda I've talked about, about look how expensive everything's getting. Look at the price. So anything to make people frustrated and paralyze the system. That's, that's kind of what they're, the Russian bots and the Russian propaganda will focus on. Right. And that plays into the our next uh, story. Uh, news outlet Medusa.io reports that Russian officials are confident that they will achieve most, if not all, of their military goals in Ukraine Medusa says unnamed sources tell them that the Kremlin's minimum requirement for achieving victory is gaining control of the Donbass region, but they're still considering another assault on Kiev. And uh, from Medusa.io, we'll grind them down in the end. The whole thing will probably be over by the fall, one source told Medusa. And then this is why it's uh, 
this story is related to what we were just talking about. Medusa also wrote, quote, Kremlin officials are skeptical that Western nations can sustain their massive financial and military support to Ukraine if the war drags on. Uh, sooner or later, Europe will tire of helping. This is both money and arms productions that they need for themselves. Closer to the fall, they'll have to negotiate on gas and oil before the cold season arrives, one, soul, one source told Medusa. So, like you're saying, they're, hoping, they're thinking if they just hold out long enough, the West will lose interest, the West will get tired of dealing with the negative effects. Yeah, and, they'll, they'll want to have their money and start getting our economies back going and focusing on other things. Yes. Well, it didn't work for the Confederates. Might work here, but that would also involve them being able themselves to survive for long enough. I mean, right. It's like, I, <laughs> I think they're right about the Battle of Wills, but it's also, well, you guys are sanctioned pretty heavily. And um, from I think what I've read, they're like, scraping the bottom of the barrel getting like old like 50 year old tanks out now right so i've seen reports from western uh you know analysts saying that russia has gone through most if not all of its like you know most up-to-date military equipment and of course i've seen people point out too that for a lot of the western nations they have a direct vested interest in seeing Russia fail. You know, places like Finland and Sweden, uh, other European countries, NATO members, you know, for them, it's not just a matter of, you know, ideological help or uh, global politics. It's like a direct matter of, we're most likely next on the agenda. Right. So it's very much in our best interest to see this through in helping Ukraine. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, you know, it was like that whole thing about um, uh, Hitler taking nibbling, nibbling again. Uh, it was, uh, I guess, uh, the Don Boss perhaps was closer to Sudetenland and the Czech Republic. It's hard to draw direct metaphors, but uh, you know, it's like if uh, people had stood up to him a little bit sooner, maybe uh, he could have been removed from power or who knows. I mean, well, we really don't know what would have happened, but uh, people like to say, well, if we if like Neville Chamberlain and, and the West had, you know, said no sooner and like, all right, we're going to war, even if we're not quite ready. And so uh, we're kind of finally doing that with with Putin. I mean, I understand why he invaded. He kept getting away with it. You know, if you invade, right. you know. <laughs> well, and it makes me think about the Cold War. And, you know, obviously Putin's not a communist. He's about as far from communist as you can be, which is funny considering, you know, he was, got his start in the communist government. But he's doing... He seems to be doing exactly what the West was afraid Stalin would do, which was, you know, just try to spread as far as possible. And it it makes me think about our 
like, you know, during the Cold War, that was a very conservative stance. Like, we have to stop this advance at all costs. And now our conservatives side here in the States seems to be a little lukewarm on that, you know. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Um, and maybe that's because Stalin, or not Stalin, but because Putin actually is more similar to their ideals and political goals that Stalin was. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of people that find that curious. It was like I was looking at the um, the League of the South. I talked about this a year or two ago with uh, my wife. And I was said, we know that there's a great cultural change when the Baptists and evangelicals start becoming Eastern Orthodox. Um, yeah, because with the Russian uh, Eastern Orthodox specifically, they're very much. Well, I mean, no, the whole the whole Eastern Orthodox is traditional, but the Russian is very like focused on being traditional to like a point of a fetish. Like we won't compromise with anyone. They're not really big on dialogue because any compromises, you know, messing with the Word of God. And it's like oh, that okay, sounds I, 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 very yeah, that familiar. Sounds, that sounds very familiar. Yeah. Um, but they have still kind of different ideas than evangelicals would. But there have been some. I was reading where, where in some of like the American Eastern Orthodox churches have um, been a little frustrated by getting these these kind of far right people that join, and they're kind of racist. And that's kind Kinda. of why they joined. Kind of <laughs> racist. Well, <laughs> yeah. No, um, I know. I understand. You give them. Uh, you know, a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, but yeah, uh, and the the you know, the <laughs> the people born and raised in it are a little uh, well, this isn't. And it's like, well, I was, you know, I got converted by talking to people online, and so it's oh, that's great. So you're just, I'm assuming you're just visiting our church, and you'll be returning to your mega church next week. Uh, well, so yeah, I mean, it has it, uh, but the um, I started with the League of the South. I was reading their page, and um, they're we're very friendly with Russia. You go down like the the side articles, and it's you know the whole well, they're you know conservative, and they're about the traditional family, and you know, and the the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. Kirill, he was like, well, this war is necessary because the West is letting gay, gay, having gay pride parades and messing with our children, and we got to protect the children. And it's like, oh, well, that sounds familiar. Uh, I didn't know it was been a justification for a war, but oh, there you go. Now you got it. Um, uh, David Duke went and studied in Ukraine at one of the pro-Russian Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian universities. And he came back and was... Um, you know, if you don't know, David Duke was like the head of the KKK for a while. Right, I remember, and he was a U.S. politician as well, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah. Or well, he, least... I think I think he ran for I can't remember if he ran for governor or senator or both. Um, he didn't win, but uh, right, he, anyway, but he, he, he he made a run. Yeah. Um, but he, you know, he kind of preached the gospel of Russia isn't the enemy, and he was doing that before it was cool. Apparently, like I, I just, I just looked up uh, David Duke, uh, looking at his Wikipedia page. <laughs> the first paragraph is, um, 
it was not written by a fan of his, I will assume. Uh, it says, quote, David Ernest Duke is an American white supremacist, anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist, far-right politician, convicted felon, and former Grand Wizard of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. From 1989 to 1992, he was a member of the Louisiana House of Representatives for the Republican oh, Party. His politics and writing are largely devoted to promoting conspiracy theories about Jews, such as Holocaust denial and Jewish control of academia, the press, and the financial system. So, yeah. He's a character. And uh, yeah. it, we live in strange times where the far right in, the, in America seems to be in love with Russia now. It's weird. I think we pretty much said why. Uh, yeah, uh, they they well they repeat the Republican talking points. Uh, we're, we're, yeah. Like we were talking about, I kind of hate calling it the Republican talking points. I really, I mean, should say the pundits talking points that that support the GOP. But the whole like um, they're trying to indoctrinate your children. Um, no, that's I, I. I think that that it's fair to say that those are pol Republican politician talking points too. Yeah. I've heard plenty of Republicans repeating those same things. They're indoctrinating your children. They're trying to cancel us. That's yes. another thing Putin repeats over and over again. Um, but what about this other thing? They're really big about that. It's like, well, you're saying us invading. Um, Crimea was bad, and just invading Ukraine was bad, but you guys invaded Iraq. What about that? And that's a very, you know, you get you get that. What aboutism is is yeah. it's a pretty cheap tactic, and they yeah. they use it like penny candy. Uh, you yeah, did it too, right? Uh, but yeah, so in the whole you know conservative um, you know lifestyle thing, or uh, and then the um, authoritarian personality types, you know, like the, oh, uh, you know, we like a strong leader. Um, it is, that's one thing that I've always found kind of interesting about the um, conservative mindset is how it can be very Schrodingery. Like, I'm all about freedom and individuality. Personal liberty. Like yeah, personal liberty, but we, we need a strong leader who can organize things and, you know, you listen to your boss. Right. It's like, I want to be absolutely free to go have a boss who tells me what to do all the time. I'm like, I, right. don't, I don't under. I and don't a lot of the times this. it seems like the the individual freedoms that they push for are often freedom the freedom to be able to oppress other people. <laughs> right. Freedom and, to not serve them cake. Right. You know, we <laughs> talked to Antoinette said, let them eat cake. Well, she didn't really, but anyway, she said, let, right, let them right. eat cake. It's like, I will not give you cake. Right. <laughs> well, you know, we mentioned this very briefly last week. We were talking about, um, you know, the, the ages long philosophical argument of balancing freedom and justice and so and so one of the things I've thought about, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to think about this, but I think about the abolition of slavery here in the United States and how, you know, most people see that as a, a move where the U.S. government granted rights to people, which it did. Right. You know, it 
it gave black people the right to not be slaves anymore. And it says no more slavery. And so you freed a big group of people. But to the slave owners, that was oppression because you're saying they were saying you're infringing on my right to own other people. And and well, you you took my property without recompense. Yes. And that maybe maybe by eminent domain, but you didn't give me anything. Oh, right. And that seems to be the, you know, like the underlying motivation between or behind all of the cries of injustice from the right is you're telling me that I can't oppress certain people, that I have to accept certain people's right to exist and to have the same rights that I do. And I don't want to do that. And you're making me do that. So for them, that's an infringement on their rights. And if we have any, if you have a strong leader to make sure that we do put prayer in school and make everybody. Well, they want a strong leader who's going to enforce all the rules that they think everyone should be following. That that, that was kind of what I was getting. Right. Right. (laughs) It's like like this, this like schizophrenic approach to reality. It it, it does kind of fascinate me. Any, any political ideology or attitude can have its, its contradictions. And just, we seem to be seeing a lot more in the media with these sorts of contradictions lately, or at least I'm noticing that maybe that's just what I'm, I'm seeing right. because of where I came from, you know, the, yeah. the worldview perspective, but. Right. And, you know, that plays into the, uh, some of the signposts of fascism. One of those things being, uh, contradictions within the philosophy are perfectly okay. Yeah. They're, they're, not e- not even just accepted, but they're like an integral part of fascism. Yeah, well, that, yeah, it can be, even be promoted. That opposing <laughs> truths, you know, like contradictory truths, are held both held true at the same time, even though they don't mesh. Yeah. <sighs> All right, we're going to come back to that uh, topic about freedom and democracy and whatnot in a bit first we're going to talk about the war uh, in ukraine so russian forces have started to push into the eastern city of severodonetsk i'm sure i said that wrong severodonetsk oh don't get me to lying on it i give up i give up on pronouncing that um it's it's in the eastern city it's in the eastern part of of Ukraine where Russia has been making advances. So from Reuters quote, slow solid Russian gains in recent days point to a subtle momentum shift in the war. Now in its fourth month, the invading forces appear close to seizing all of the Luhansk region of Donbass, One of the more modest war goals, the Kremlin set after abandoning its assault on Kiev in the face of Ukrainian resistance. So, uh, uh, Serhiy Hede, governor of Luhansk, said that Russian troops are in the city and residents may have to flee 
Hadeh says that more than half of the homes in the city have been destroyed and most of the buildings have been damaged. So Russia's making some gains. Yeah, I've area. been following on live map and um, sort of like a Canadian fellow, a Canadian foreign fighter. And um, he, yeah, he was saying they're making gains. They're, they're slow, but they're also, they seem to be running out of steam. Uh, the Russians. It's like the Russians seem to, but they've been paying heavily for it and, and lives and equipment. Um, but they'll probably they'll probably make a few more gains. Um, yeah, they'll pro- um, they, you know they'll probably they may even take that city. This is still kind of holding out, uh, but but it, it'd be kind of like Maripol where they you know they can hold well, out, but for how long? Well, they're not surrounded yet, and it doesn't. It's not close, close to them being surrounded. Um, I mean, if the Russians made a, a, a major breakthrough, um, they're. I mean, they are trying to surround it. If they did happen to make a major breakthrough, then yes, it could be surrounded. But that's not an immediate danger. And um, so, yeah, we're probably not looking at like a Maripol situation. I mean, they, I, w- I would assume they would pull pull back, and there are better defensive positions. But you know, the, the people on the ground they know better what to do than I do. So they, right. they, they need to dig in there. Then they need to dig in there. You know, right. Well, meanwhile, Ukraine continues to receive weapons and aid from the West. They recently received howitzers from the United States and harpoon shore to ship missiles from Denmark which Ukrainian officials say will be used to defend the coast near Odessa. And Lithuanian citizens came together to crowdsource the purchase of a Baykar Bayraktar TB2 advanced military drone for nearly $5 million. So they did a, you know, kind of like a, a Kickstarter <laughs> to, buy, me for to buy a single drone for Ukraine. So that's, yeah. I mean, not Kickstarter specifically, but you know, like that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's uh, pretty pretty neat. Everybody yeah. get together, and they they've been given a lot of uh, money and equipment and stuff too. But yeah, it's the private war. <laughs> and the Russians are crowdsourcing a lot of things too. But it's mostly like uh, for what I've seen, radios and. And vest and clothing and boots and you know, like wet wipes and you know things like that. So you know, it's like the, everybody just crowdsourcing the war. Yeah, it's like, an inter- hey. it's it's interesting. We we are watching an evolution of you know of military. The nature of military conflict is strange and it, like it, yeah, I can say interesting. You know, in a way. All right, well, uh, now we'll talk a little bit about China. A leaked document appears to show China's intentions to increase its influence with smaller Pacific nations. From The Guardian, quote, a draft of the deal written in a similar style to the controversial bilateral security deal signed by Solomon Islands and China last month and a five-year action plan, both of which have been obtained by The Guardian, cover a huge range of issues, including trade, financing and investment, tourism, public health and COVID-19 support, establishing Chinese language and cultural exchanges, training and scholarships, as well as disaster, I'm sorry, disaster prevention and relief, end quote. 
And on Saturday, May 28th, Samoa signed a deal with China that is believed to be similar to the one with Solomon Islands. So China is making, you know, big moves to increase their uh, influence and their, you know, their pool in that area. And it's got a lot of, uh, you know, like people in the West, American officials, uh, Australian officials uh, and others, you know, very worried. And this is something I, I was going to ask you about. I, I don't quite, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't be worried, but I don't quite understand what specifically their worries are. You know, what do they think is going to happen? Do they think this is going to, you know, like help bolster China's military capabilities? Is it going to, is it going to increase their influence over the political systems in these countries? I think the, well, the, the, the quick answer is probably all of the above. Um, they're probably not worried so much about direct influence, like the, you know, like the Chinese deciding who's going to run the Solomon Islands. Uh, but those islands no longer go into the U.S., New Zealand, Australia. And in fact, like if you did get kind of a, a dictator or something in, in a place, then they won't go anywhere. Whereas as it stands, eh, you know, New Zealand, Australia, or the U.S., if somebody's in that kind of sphere of influence, might get removed or pressured out. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, do you think that that could lead to, you know, China influencing, you know, policy in those nations too to make those governments more closely resemble China's government? Well, it, it, any country would do, it would do that. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm sure, but I wouldn't necessarily say that's you know like a nefarious thing if they're going to pull in money and assistance for a country obviously it's for their own business interest um i mean the the worry would be largely kind of where it's at and if they start putting in military bases and locations that could be an, an issue like we have american samoa right by samoa and so now they're you know theoretically could be a military base right there by the, or the by U.S. territory, right? Um, and there are lots of um, within China, or excuse me, outside of China in the South China Sea, a lot of islands and territories in dispute. So, yeah, and so they're you know increasing that military power. And that they might be able to just, use to uh, seize those disputed places. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so the Philippines, Vietnam, um, Malaysia, and Taiwan would have the most, and Japan would have the most reasons to be worried about an increase in power in the region. But I can't really see that they've, you know, like, you can't tell them not to, and I don't. I don't know that you should. I mean, they're they're a country. They they have a right to pursue their their interests, but it is something to be aware of. I mean, they're trying to increase their soft power. I mean, even things like going and setting up a 
yeah, well, Confucius Institute, uh, I think, I can't remember what that, I think, it, yeah, the Chinese government has Confucius Institute where you they go in and teach um, uh, Chinese to people for discounted prices or something and, you know, just kind of spread the culture. You know, that's, that's soft power. It's understandable. I mean, they should be doing that. And then people become more comfortable with Chinese and buy Chinese music and, you know, Chinese fashion and, you know, it's a soft power yeah. spreading a culture. That's it, you know. it's interesting. You 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 uh, talk about that. I am playing a game of Civilization Five, where uh, I'm going for a culture victory. Which, if you're not familiar with the game, there are different ways you can win. Uh, you know, a science victory if you're the first nation to launch a shuttle into space. Or military, you know, domination. If you take over all of the different uh, uh, cities, civilizations, um, religious victory, and one is a cultural victory. And I'm I'm almost there with the cultural victory. <laughs> and so the oh, other ci the other uh, civilization leaders will pop in with a message to me and go, "Oh, great! Now our." My citizens are buying your blue jeans and listening to your mute, your pop music. What's next? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it makes me wonder, though, because like here in, in America, we constantly hear politicians, and this is a this is a bipartisan issue. Both sides of the of our political parties you know, or carrying the same uh, message here that they keep warning that China is a threat. I don't ever hear them say, and maybe it's because I, you know, I haven't paid attention enough, but like, I don't understand what that threat is. Well, they want Taiwan back and they've already said it. That's, I mean, and they want the Paris Islands and they have territories that they want. And they have every intention of getting them. And they will play the long game until that happens. Or they are confronted and kind of forced to give the idea up. But then who would ever give the idea up? Right. You know, I mean, they would never give the idea up, you know. So, um, I mean, that that's the threat. And, and you also have issues like, well, how they're treating people in, in their own countries. You know, the whole Xing, Xinjiang um, issue. And, you know, it's like, well, here you got a big, powerful country that is doing something that we can't really pressure them to not do, or we don't have the pool not to. And uh, we could do something like, you know, stop doing business with them, but, you know, that would cost a whole lot of money. So we're not going to do that. Um, you know, that's, that's where, you know, some of that it's from. It's like, well, if we can, you know, wave and talk about how scared uh, scary they are well that's kind of doing something about how badly a minority group in their country is being treated i don't know uh, something like that but i think the quickest answer is they've made it very clear they have territorial ambitions and you know as long as we do not wish that they act on those for example taking taiwan back then okay they're a threat okay I, yeah, I guess that makes sense. All right. Well, let's, uh, we're kind of, we're bringing things, uh, 
back home here in the U.S., um, Politico reports that Americans leaving the U.S. to fight in Ukraine are being questioned at U.S. airports before they leave. Politico says it acquired an intelligence bulletin from the Department of Homeland Security and U.S. Customs and Border Patrol. Uh, From the article, quote, The document shows that the U.S. government is gathering information about Americans traveling to Ukraine and and is interested in their activity after they return. But critics say the focus on, quote, violent extremist white supremacists echoes one of the Kremlin's top propaganda points that supporting Ukraine means also supporting neo-Nazis, end quote. Uh, Politico also says the document notes uh, that concern that Homeland Security is concerned about white supremacists and extremists returning to the U.S. with advanced military training. So, you know, uh, we definitely have an issue, a problem with white supremacists and far-right extremists in this country and yeah so i don't know oh they just follow up on facebook they know who they are they're not hiding just like oh, okay oh you're going out you're gonna go fight with ukraine okay let me follow you on facebook okay yeah there you go it's all done well that's you got it to twitter <laughs> you can't, white you know, supremacists and and far-right extremists in america ever since trump they feel very emboldened they feel i don't think they've ever felt like genuinely socially in danger. You know, they talk about being persecuted a lot, but in general, they seem to be really open with their thoughts and their, you know, opinions, their, and their intentions, you know, maybe not always with their violent intentions, but, you know, they're pretty open. I still, it still kind of blows me away that there's this sort of like neo-Nazi civil war um, within like the Ukraine-Russia fight. Like they, I mean, saying like, oh, well, it's neo-Nazis going to fight in Ukraine. Well, there'd be neo-Nazis fighting on both sides. You can't say, oh, we're going to go fight in U- to Ukraine. Because, um, yeah, they, they are on, they're quite literally neo-Nazis on both sides. They're and, everywhere. It, it, yeah, well, it, it, it reminds me of the, the different flavors of, of, of hate you can find. And um, like also, uh, before um, Austria was gobbled up uh, by Germany, they had a fascist government, but it was like a Catholic religious nationalist fascism. And it wasn't quite the same fascism as it was closer to Mussolini's fascism than it was to Hitler's fascism. And even though Mussolini and Hitler managed to work out their differences, you know, Hitler and this other guy couldn't. And so it's, um, it's like, I guess the, the neo-Nazis that support Ukraine are more interested in localized nationalism and identity, like smaller countries having smaller fascist states and the, Russian Nazis are probably closer to the German Nazis in a sort of a pan cultural movement where I think the Germans called it like Aryans and they seem to be saying pan Slavic, you know, like 
And so all the Slavs and perhaps everyone else needs to be gobbled up and russified because those are the, the most proper Slavs to emulate. And uh, like, okay. Right. So I, I'm guessing that's the difference. And since the um, Russian Orthodox Church has a whole like, hey, you know, the, the gay people are kind of bad, that, that probably draws in those that, that are worried about the culture war a bit more. Maybe the the Ukrainian Nazis are less worried about the culture war. I don't know. I mean, that's a, that's a graduate thesis for somebody out <laughs> right. there. What are the differences between? I, I think it is a legitimate question. Yeah. Like, what is drawing some group of like tattoo yourself with a swastika to the Russians and? than others towards Ukrainians. Right, because we've seen plenty of reports of neo-Nazis and, uh, you know, white supremacists within Russian forces. I've probably seen more of that than I have of them being in Ukrainian forces in the news, although that's probably by design, you know. I feel like Western news... Yeah, some of that will be. Yeah, Western news outlets aren't going to... Most of them are probably not going to go that deep into... Uh, any neo-nazis within ukrainian forces well they were they were like two or three years ago that was a big old um dog whistly thing um and we even talked about it for a while about well you know like they've got some nazis but you know the the government's trying to do something about it and i mean there are fewer nazis in the um, ukrainian parliament than there are in like the italian parliament you know, like as far as like what you'd call fascist. Right. Um, I don't think, I don't think that even though they do have a, like a, a Nazi party, they don't have any in their parliament. Yeah. But the, but still there was all this media about, Oh, here are these, you know, volunteer Nazis. I'm like, well, Russians have volunteer Nazis. Not, not to be what about ism, but you can't go claiming that. Right. <laughs> these guys. Are tolerating Nazis, and you've got them in your own ranks, and you're not doing anything about it. In fact, you're encouraging. Like, right. It's it's a bad faith argument. Yeah. That that's why they're doing things. And I'm still struck, and I think that I've mentioned this before, but I'm still struck at how strange European racism seems to me compared to like American racism, you know, because in America, it's basically white people who don't like, you know, African-Americans or Mexicans or, you know, like Latinos or Jews or Muslims. They're very, like, easy uh, to recognize. It's phenotypical based. Yeah. Whereas in in Europe, it seems like it's mostly just against other white people who are like slightly different. Is that, is that accurate? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, it's, it's tribalism and it's kind of hard. Like a lot of racism really is tribalism and like, it's one of the things that, I almost think we should replace the word racism with tribalism, but then it becomes like, well, you're trying to erase race. But 
you can't you can't have these groups that well the whole thing like race doesn't really exist it's a social construct a figment of our imagination um, largely based on phenotypes that even cross over you know like uh, octoroons or well, I guess that, I guess that's a, an offensive word but the, the people that were like one eighth um, African and they're legally right um, considered black people but you know they're they're white, their phenotype is white, you know, so if they, you know, if they managed to get enough money to move somewhere else, it was like, okay, I'm white. And, you know, there it is. Um, they're white suddenly. But, um, at the end of the day, a lot of it's culture. Yeah. You know, like the, the Scots Irish and the Irish, I mean, they're, they're, they are, I mean, they're technically different tribes, but not that different. Yeah. Um, as far as genetics go, I mean, they're, they're, uh, you know, probably about as much as there is between someone from Northern England and Southern England, you know, if, if not less. Yeah. It's, but it's their religious values that are different, the way body language things that are different. And, um, so that, you know, humans, we just, we freaking monkeys, man. And we were tribalistic. Right. Like George and, Carlin said, we're, we're barely out of the jungle. Yeah. And, the in in the U.S. we we just based it more on skin tone, right? And there because of our melting I, pot, I say, and you know, a lot of people will say that there there isn't like an American culture or American culture, American national identity is still relatively young and less developed than you know, like old countries in Europe. If I think. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, well, we have, um, we kind of had the beginning of the formation of an ethnogenesis, which is what I think is part of the reason um, some people, especially like in the Appalachia and the American South, where they can get kind of upset, is when you you have the people with the, they're like, okay, I know I'm Irish, you know, I came from Boston, Irish neighborhood, yeah, I know I'm Irish or Italian, and then you got people kind of like us that were this mix, but we all pretty much came from um, Scotland, England, Wales, and then the German and Ireland and the German that we do have in us were Palatinates, you know, you know, people from the Palatinate. Right. A lot of those people or the German immigrants ended up in like yeah, the Midwest and, and stuff. Yeah. And, um, what was it? The Huguenots, you know, a fair amount of Huguenot French that came over. And so there's even a, on the census, a group that says, well, what's your ethnicity? And they put down American. And it's really, it's people from the American South, Appalachian. And, and it's because, well, it's like, well, this, this family's been here since before the American Revolution. I mean, I don't know. I'm American. I mean, you know, grandma's this, grandpa's right. that. And there's something in us about wanting to be proud of, of our heritage. And it seems to have become just to be, well, okay, well, I'm white. And this is, well, and so I'm proud of my white heritage. And why can't I say I'm proud of my white heritage? It's like, well, that just sounds, that sounds kind of hateful. And it's like, but I'm not really Irish because I'm not from Ireland. Right. But also like that white heritage, a lot of that involves a lot of really nasty history. You know, 
Well, yes, but any heritage involves nasty history. Well, that's true. Almost any heritage. But, you know, people are, so, it's a human instinct. It's a human need to have a strong sense of personal identity. And I, I feel like that's something that Americans, white Americans especially, have struggled with. Uh, I think that black Americans, and I could be wrong, but I feel like black Americans have had a strong personal identity just because of the situation, the oppression that they've been put into during American history. So they've had a personal identity kind of foisted on them that they have since, you know, adopted and um, evolved themselves. But white Americans are still floundering. I think it depends on the region, too. And, you know, because uh, you have like New England people from New England, the upper crust that, you know, oh, yes, all of our great great-grandparents were on the Mayflower. Yeah. They, they might have a little bit better like, oh, I'm this, you know. Uh, but I, I'm suggesting that perhaps there should be a word like the Cajuns. You got the Cajuns. We know who the Cajuns are. Oh, this is a group of oh, the Cajuns. All right. Right. <laughs> and um, I, I think if perhaps if it might take a little bit of that racial tension and angst if people to get and also to get away from the black white divide to have some kind of word for different kind of ethnic groups right. like the the New England Puritan people, people that are mostly descended from New England Puritans, if they have an identity, okay, what is it? You know, uh, they have the Quebecois in Canada, the, the, um, the Acadians, you know, and, but I don't think my, I have the right to call my ethnicity American because like all my ancestors were in the U S before the revolution. Uh, um, but then I also don't want to just call myself a white guy because that's a lot of baggage, and I don't want to say. And also, what does it mean? White heritage. Because yeah, I'm proud of my white. What is the connection <laughs> between a white person who comes from Arkansas and whose family, you know, and their lineage is from Arkansas, and a white person in New York City? You know, culturally, there's not going to be a lot there to connect those those two people. Yeah. Well, that's my point. Is there? There should be. There should be. Like we. Go ahead. I'm actually, sadly, I'm listening to myself like, oh my goodness, I'm actually encouraging tribalism. Well, <laughs> it's, it's a fine line. It's like, you know, the problem is, the problem isn't that different cultures and different personal identities exist. The problem, I think, comes from when some of them, and this is a natural thing too, but when some of them start to insist that they're superior to other tribal identities. Right, yeah, I'm starting looking for the differences. And, and the need to feel to superior is also, and seems to me, uh, to be another inherent human trait, you know. And obviously yeah. not, every, not every inherent human trait is positive. And the need to feel superior to others is not a positive trait. I see <laughs> yeah. it all the time and from everybody, not just like conservatives or right-wing people. I see it in literally everyone i think it's another trait that uh another instinct that we have that each person has to sort of like acknowledge within themselves and confront and uh sort of weed out of their life um and of course you know some people it's going to be stronger and some people than others given their 
you know, the culture that they're raised in and their personal experience growing up. But yeah, it's a problem. It's a big problem. You know, the need to feel superior. Uh, well, let's actually move on because our next news story uh, relates to this whole conversation. Uh, this is related to that uh, mass shooting that happened in Buffalo earlier this month. U.S. authorities believe a retired FBI agent, along with five other individuals, may have known in advance about Buffalo shooter Peyton Gendron's plans to target black people at a supermarket on May 15th where he gunned down 10 people. One law enforcement officer told the Buffalo News, quote, These were like-minded people. He used this chat group to talk about their shared interests in racial, racial hatred, replacement theory, and hatred of anyone who is Jewish, a person of color, or not of European ancestry. What is especially upsetting is that these six people received advance notice of the Buffalo shooting at the, about 30 minutes before it happened. Uh, and then, so the Buffalo News reports, quote, two law enforcement sources with direct knowledge of the investigation stated these individuals were invited by Gendron to read about his mass shooting plans and the target location about 30 minutes before Gendron killed 10 people at Topps Markets on Jefferson Avenue on May 14th. So, you know, the, another racially motivated act of just senseless violence. Um, and this when you know, we talk about um, the proliferation of, you know, these white supremacists in American law enforcement. So one of those guys that knew about it and had been talking in online chats was a retired FBI agent, you know. <laughs> right. I was telling um, in my government class, I'm talking about uh, revolutions, and uh, the, what is very often the deciding factor of if a coup or a revolution will succeed are the police. Um, those police are the ones that hold back the, the general populace. If the police go with whoever is revolting, then, well, it will, it will probably succeed. If the police stay along with the regime in power, well, it'll, it'll probably stay in power. And so if you are going to try to uh, instigate a regime change by force, then you want to infiltrate the police. might take 10, 15, 20 years to do it. Well, uh, so, I mean, this is, so I think that, uh, that's why we, you want to watch groups like the Oath Keepers, where it's like, it, it sounds nice. They say, oh, well, you know, we promised to uphold the Constitution. It's like, oh well, that's good. I mean, I mean, don't, you should. That's like the, what you're supposed to do. And it's like, well, then you find out a little bit more about what they mean by that, and you're like, uh, hold it, what? <laughs> you know? what, what? What? What are you talking about? Right. Um, and I mean, back in um, 2015, the FBI released a report stating that you know they'd been seeing. Uh, infiltration of white supremacist groups within U.S. law enforcement. 2015, that was... Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. That wasn't 2015. That was 2006. 
Oh, yeah. Well, like I said, yeah, 15, well, 20 years. It, it was, oh, I, I'm sorry. I, I told you, 2030. I told you, I'm looking at a PBS <laughs> article from 2016, and I, I didn't recognize the, the name of the article is FBI warned of white supremacists in law enforcement 10 years ago. Has anything changed? Uh, that was in 2016. The report came out in 2006. Uh, quote, uh, this is from the PBS article, quote, in the 2006 bulletin, the FBI detailed the threat of white nationalists and skinheads infiltrating police in order to disrupt investigations against fellow members and recruit other supremacists. The bulletin was released during a period of scandal for many law enforcement agencies throughout the country, including a neo-Nazi gang formed by members of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department who harassed black and Latino communities. Similar investigations revealed officers and entire agencies with hate group ties in Illinois, Ohio, and Texas. So, you know, that, like I said, that was, well, 2006. I can't do basic, simple math right now. That was... Well, 26 is 20 years. Okay, so like 14, 15 years ago. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah and you know like you mentioned that historically i you know i i know that like when the nazis took over the police were very much on their side yeah well yeah the other ones also make a like a private military or a parallel military as many institutions as possible actually that's loyal to you like the brown shirts yeah and then what became the ss um you know like yeah parallel institutions that will answer to you right that like kind of stay underground until it's time to make a move and then they pop up and be like what what yeah so um election it's going to be a very interesting election season this year We'll see. Well, Xi Jinping has some like um, warm words. For yes, him, he? Uh, and this is yeah our, our last story today, and something that I feel warrants um, a lot of discussion. While speaking to the graduating class uh, at the U.S. Naval Academy on Friday, May twenty seventh, President Biden said that Chinese President Xi Jinping warned him that democracy will fail. Biden said, quote, I've met more with Xi Jinping than any other world leader has. When he called me to congratulate me on election night, he said to me what he has said many times before. He said democracies cannot be sustained in the 21st century. Autocracies will run the world. Why? Things are changing so rapidly. Democracies require consensus and it takes time and you don't have the time. So, well, he might not be wrong. Um, that reminds me, um, I think her name was Scopal. It was um, a political scientist that, like, her theory of revolution. And it was that a nation engages in competition with the other. Like, there's modernization, something changes, the industrial revolution, a computer revolution, a a change in trade policy, the discovery of a, a new material or technology, and countries are engaged in competition, um, you know, related, often related to modernization. Uh, problems start coming up, 
and the institutions become paralyzed. Uh, well, they well first they start trying to make reforms to deal with their problems, but the reforms often aggravate people because any reform is going to make winners or losers, you know. Right. Or, so, uh, so then people start getting upset, and the institutions end up getting frozen and lose their legitimacy. And once they lose their legitimacy. Then people feel that, like, well, why are we even voting? The system doesn't really work. And, okay, we have to resort to violence to get things done. And it kind of, you know, makes sense. And like, oh, we have so much chaos. Right. We need a strong And then you talk about winners and losers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, out of, out of the chaos comes, comes a strong person. So with that in mind and with what we know of the autocrats, I think the Chinese have largely stayed out of our politics, but the Russians haven't. People that would destroy American democracy, what they're going to want to do is delegitimize voting and paralyze our institutions and delegitimize the courts. That's Those are some so, big check marks. Yeah, yeah. So, and we can see that. And this is one thing I'm worried about with the, with the left is like, the, the left is not happy with the Supreme Court. And it's like, okay, I can understand that. Um, the, the Republicans played the long game on getting um, justices in there that they liked, but it was all done constitutionally, so it's legitimate. Now, perhaps there should be some reforms, but... There's that word again. I would... Yeah, but I would be, I would be remiss to say that the Supreme Court or any ruling they come up with, no matter how much I dislike it, is illegitimate. Yeah, so, but that's, that, I imagine that if I were a Russian propagandist and I was trying to cause discord in America, I would be pumping the Roe versus Wade controversy on both sides and the us versus them and doing everything to stop any reasonable discussion and make it a us versus them, good versus evil thing. And same thing with the uh, gun control. I would totally be making that like um, all one side. <laughs> like the other, the other people, they don't know what they're talking about. Right. They want to. But in our environment, how much effort do they actually need to put into that right now? I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. Is that's, I don't think they have to do much. Yeah. But um, that that's kind of, a, I think, our, our purpose is to maybe make people aware that it's there. And oh, we have an audience. It's slowly growing. So maybe they can tell other people and more people that this is how our democracy is kind of being eroded away. Like, this is a historical precedent. Um, and it's troubling, thing, too, because the, you know, the conservative section of the population they seem to be to care less and less about democracy you know especially since they bought into this conspiracy theory that the 2020 election was stolen i don't like it totally seems well, that, that they don't yeah. care about democracy anymore it's not important well, they, to them they they do care they they do care about democracy and they do care about voting they have become convinced that the, the institution is corrupted. 
the institution was successfully attacked for them. So the people, a lot of these people that are going around saying that, oh, you know, the the vote was rigged. And I, I think they do care about democracy in their heart of hearts. Um, they have just, they want, but because they lost, they want to believe that it was rigged. Right. And so they look for that confirmation that it was rigged. And my, my, and, my argument is that since they believe that it was rigged and that, you know, what they, their candidate was robbed that, and that, you know, they believe that our election process has been corrupted, that they're happy with abandoning it now. That's, or at least that's the impression that I get. Um, you know, I'm obviously, I've said it many times, much to your chagrin, oh, but a- I'm not an expert, yeah. but that's the impression that I'm getting more and more is that, you know, like it's the hidden message in what I hear people say in their commentary, you know, is that, well, all bets are off because you guys stole it. Well, yeah, it's the, well, what I was just saying, once the institution is no longer legitimate, then violence becomes justified. Right. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying that that's the the thought process. And that's how democracies are, uh, you know, actually any sort of government is if you, if you delegitimize the institutions, but just speaking specifically with democracy, it would be delegitimizing voting and and the courts. Yeah. Um, Things that can help destroy a democracy are, as I mentioned before, um, us versus them thinking, stonewall and block any legislation, um, scapegoating, uh, like, oh, it's uh, this group's particular fault, and not really offering real solutions. All of that like, sounds terribly uh, familiar. Yeah, and making really, like using folksy wisdom. Heuristic but, thinking. Yeah, but not really putting any deep thought. Um, like You're just appealing them, to people's emotions and just yeah. not really thinking about facts or science or yeah well, like i'll give it an example like guns don't kill people people kill people it's like okay well yeah i mean you are right guns don't kill people i mean it takes a, a person squeezing the trigger or dropping it by accident and it going off or something right you know? a i guess ha- an earthquake theoretically right. could <laughs> a person <laughs> is a key uh, uh a key ingredient in gun violence but Guns are also a key ingredient in gun violence. Yeah. Well, then, then it's like, well, where's the deep thought on, okay, well, why are people killing people? And then it comes with simplistic but impossible solutions like, oh, well, if we had two family homes with, with a father that was ever present and and people spent every Sunday, you know, spending time thinking about how to how to be good, then all these problems would be fixed. And I'm like, that that's an impossible goal. Like that's basically like and saying, also well, probably not even were, true, right? Probably not even true. Like, well, it's like saying, well, if everyone were nice and good and considered the feelings of others and refused to hurt each other, then we wouldn't have gun violence. Like, it, it's it sounds sweet, but it's a completely meaningless argument, right? And so, I mean, those are the sorts of things that that work and and destroying democracy, oddly enough. Right. Like, and I wanted to touch briefly on. 
another huge issue that's going to play into this uh, is playing into this and will play into this more and more. And that's global warming and, you know, how that is accelerating societal collapse in a lot of places. It's, you know, so for example, we talk about, you know, immigration from Central and South American countries in the United States is already a huge flashpoint and more people are going to be coming as those segments of the world become unlivable. They're going to get hotter and drier and those people are going to need to go somewhere and that my more conspiratorial mind, um, you know, back in, during Trump's presidency, when we saw him clamping down, you know, how he addressed border security there. Uh, I was like, this looks like beta testing for, you know, like what they think, you know, to see what they can get away with and how these processes need to work, you know, over the next, the coming decades as we, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 mean I, I, I don't think it's been a big secret. I mean, even the, even the democratic administration, it's like, they just kind of harass the, the the people, right? You know, like, well, let's put them put them in this facility and keep it really, really, really cold, and try to put a really give them much blanket. You know, and, we we won't couch you know. it in the same hateful rhetoric that the Republicans do, but uh, the actual tactics are not that different. Yeah, you, you you came up from from Guatemala, but we're going to fly you into Juarez. Or, or you came from or, or you, you came from Juarez and we're to fly into Guatemala. You know, just so, I mean that might be an exaggeration, but they do. Uh, I have read about like people crossing one border, but then they transferred them like from Texas to California, and then real you know cross them over in California, and it's just uh, to frustrate. And um, yeah, but well, we mentioned, you know, like with the grain prices going up and like, oh, well, you know, the people that are going to be hurt the most are the, the people in the, the economic south. And well, this this would be a way that it, it causes instability. Well, you have, you know, war and problems and that uh, the West will have to deal with one way or the other, either through direct intervention or through um, the migrants that occur. Right. And. Yeah, it'll be it'll be something to And it's one of those things with, that uh, really really excite well I say don't mean excite as in makes me excited, but activates my conspiratorial mind is the politicians, all of them and all the major business leaders, they all know what's coming for sure. And the people the Republicans you know, keep pushing that it's not an issue and we don't need to do anything about it. Um, the Democrats, of course, you know, they talk about it a lot, but they don't ever actually do anything meaningful. And, but they know, they all know. In 2018, the U.S. military uh, gave a report to President Trump that I think uh, it was like a, a years long uh, study to report that in the coming years, the biggest threat to national security is climate change, global warming, because food is going to become scarce, water is going to become scarce, and we're going to see environmental uh, problems like more wildfires, 
more severe storms, hurricanes, and tornadoes. And that's going that's going to pose the biggest threat to national security. Uh, not a lot of people paid attention to that report. But I was like, if you're going to trust anybody, I mean, you know, a, a lot of people seem to want to dismiss like the the environmental scientist nerds. But if the military is saying this, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, and a lot of it's going to be in how how we react to it and the weapons that the people have that are suffering the most uh, react to it. Uh, I think I think that the the people that do know and understand that are in power they're just going to kind of let people starve oh yeah because they can afford to set themselves up with their bunkers or compounds and yeah i mean the the west will be just a large gated community it's just okay well everybody outside you know right and and you know we'll we'll blame we'll blame them to like say oh well you know you're all starving you shouldn't have so many kids it's all your right it's like well uh uh, you kind of uh, we'll we'll be hard-hearted about it yeah but yeah that's that's what you had to look forward to yeah all right well um i think that's (laughs) we've uh uh we've gone on for quite a while so we're going to go ahead and wrap this up thanks again for listening i've started to put the rundown that includes the quotes i'm reading and the links to all the stories we're mentioning into a blog post on our website ciafiles.net you can also go there to find links to our patreon our buy me a coffee and our Threadless merch store if you want to support the show. Get a cool shirt or a cool coffee mug with the logo. You can follow us on them socials. Twitter, at CIA Files Podcast. Instagram, at CIA Files. Facebook.com slash CIA Files. And also, Jim Angleton Part 3. It's way overdue. That is all my fault, and I apologize, but I promise you, Thursday. It'll be out. And we'll be back on track. Yeah, don't make me fly to Florida and kick you in the balls. Oh, I don't want you to do that either. I mean, it'd be cool if you came to visit. We could hang out, but the uh, balls kick that I could Con- do without. Uh, with the, the consolation prize. What a kick in the balls. Consolation <laughs> prize. We'll go get waffles. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'll throw them up um, from the balls kicking. All right, but uh, in the meantime, uh, we hope you're doing well, and we wish you well, and take care. We'll we'll, we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.